Uh, thank you, Fred. And thank you, John and Alma. Jesus, Jesus reigns and watches over me. I love that. I love that line. Thank you, John. Uh, yeah. Good morning, Hillcrest. You probably heard uh, something that took place in our world just recently uh, with the overturning of Roe versus Wade that presses uh, that issue to states' rights. And a deeply personal issue for me uh, and for us collectively. We've been uh, collecting uh, change in these baby bottles and uh, calculating the total, but thankful for your, for your generous time, treasure, and talent through, uh, through a way that we get to support a local pregnancy clinic uh, I was reading a Time article recently. They said the number of faith-based uh, pregnancy clinics to uh, non-faith-based is three to one. And so uh, the journey continues, uh, that Christians get to continue to demonstrate a deep love and expression of our faith in this meaningful way. And uh, yeah, I remember going through uh, the fertility process, and one of the ethical dilemmas we were faced with was uh, one of the questions that's been swirling around our country. Casey had about 27, 28 eggs. And uh, the fertility doctor said we should just fertilize all of them at once and then uh, store them uh, for who knows what down the line. And we just said we weren't comfortable with that. Instead, we kind of did this as the process went, fertilized each egg along the journey. And then God in his grace decided that wasn't going to be the way we grow our family at that time. And so we instead went through the foster adopt process. And so uh, I've had a few conversations around this issue. Uh, one so pointed that uh, I turned to the person I was talking to. So are you telling me we better, if better, if my kids were not even born? Is that what you're telling me, right? And so just deeply personal, I'm thankful that we as Christians get to demonstrate our faith in this meaningful way. Uh, and then if you're new around here, this is about all we do. And you guys wonder if I have a filter or not. Uh, I, I contemplated whether feeding someone some baby food or some kind of food, some kind of soup, and then handing them the can and they would feed themselves. We're about being self-feeders and first-handers around here. So I decided not to do that. I do have a filter from time to time. And so our heart around here, we open the text. We call that exegesis. All that is is just opening the text to hear what God says through his word. And then that develops a theology, a, a grid for life. Last week, we talked about the king's generosity. God's generosity to us actually leads to our generosity. So rather than just telling you theology to be generous, our heart, as we look at the text, we hear about the generosity of God, and that propels us to generosity. And then we live life. Monday to Saturday, we have this grid where we begin thinking biblically about everything from Roe Ro versus Wade pro-life issues to just how we determine our ethics in the workplace, how we parent our kids, we just begin living life through this grid. So that's all we do. Week in, week out, we open the text, not to just believe what I say, but you guys can actually open this thing for yourself too. So we are continuing in this summer series called The Kingdom of God is Like. And we looked at a few weeks ago about how the kingdom grows miraculously. The farmer who sleeps and the kingdom grows and he knows not how God is changing lives. And so we look around though and we say, man, there's still brokenness and hurt that exists all around us, sometimes in our own relationships, maybe some, some, some challenges with our spouse or maybe with our family of origin or relationships we're in. We're not so naive. Poverty exists. Challenges exist. We're not so naive as if the kingdom is fully here, and yet simultaneously, we're convinced that King Jesus is changing lives. He's changed our lives, and so we're not hopeless as if the kingdom has not already begun 
And so it's this idea that it's an already, not yet kingdom. We pictured it this way a couple weeks ago. We live in this empire, empire being the world, and yet we're simultaneously citizens of another kingdom, that we, we have a home beyond this life. And, and last week, we pictured it this way. For the Jewish eschatology, the Jewish view of end times, they had an old age they lived in and they were anticipating a coming Messiah and they believed he would usher in a new age. And they were slightly confused when King Jesus, the Messiah, didn't usher in a political revolution. Instead, it became a cross-shaped kingdom. And so Jesus dies on the cross and ushers in this new age and simultaneously we're still existing in this old age. Because it became a spiritual revolution where we anticipate King Jesus returning to ultimately usher in a new heavens and a new earth. And so we've been using this definition. What is the kingdom of God? Sometimes this mysterious idea, what is it? The kingdom of God is about a king who sits on the throne of our hearts, forming a people, calling people out of darkness into spiritual light to live under his reign accordance to his guidelines. And, and so we've been looking at a guy named George Ladd. Here's a quote from his book. The righteousness of God's kingdom, the way that reign gets lived out, is the product of God's reign in our hearts. <laughs> it begins manifesting itself in our Monday to Saturday. It's God's reign in the human heart, and God must reign in our hearts and lives now if we are to enter his kingdom in the future. And so and so we've been looking at parables. Jesus has been telling and speaking about his kingdom through these stories, through these earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. And a parable being intended to address and capture the hearers, to bring them up short about their own actions. When we hear a story about the king's generosity, we ought to be struck by the fact that we do not clearly manifest that generosity to the degree that it's been uh, expressed in our life. And so it brings us up short about our own actions and causes us to respond in some ways to Jesus and his ministry. Maybe, maybe hearing a parable and going, that is what my heart has been longing for. And so we heard last week about the laborers in the vineyard. So here's Naomi 7, because our kids are also having a portion of their time dedicated to hearing these parables as well, giving parents an opportunity to discuss. So what do you think, what do you think is being drawn in this picture? What do you see? What is that? I love how kids sound, hear words, and then, and then, and then write them down. That's the market, right? Because the laborers were in the market. And the master, wanting more people to experience this, this generosity, went to the market to gather more. I loved it. I love this picture of the master gathering more people throughout the day in the market. And so ideally, uh, again, I hope... Uh, I hope uh, Darren and BJ got to talk to Naomi a little bit more. And so this morning, we're continuing with these parables, and, uh, and it's about comparative value. Ooh. Slowly. It's about comparative value. And so the parable this morning speaks of just uh, recognizing when something is more valuable than something else. And so, I don't know if you've been to a barbecue this summer. Maybe you've gone to, to pool. You've had some people over and, and you're hanging out. And then you go to the cooler and you're like, man, what, what's in there? And then suddenly you stumble upon Diet Right. And you're like, what? Well, I mean, Diet Right is great. I mean, it's nothing wrong. You know, it's 
It's good. It's fine. But then you go back to the cooler and suddenly you discover that the, the Diet Coke has been sitting there the whole time. Now, if you don't like Diet Coke, this illustration might not land on you. But for me, I just, just feed me Diet Coke through my veins, right? I love this stuff. And, and so when the Diet Coke's offered, you're like, man, that's what I've been, that is what I've been seeking. And I was, I was in the checkout line picking this up, thinking this through. And I asked, I asked the, the person at the checkout stand, which do you like, Diet, Diet Coke or, uh, or caffeine-free Diet Coke? I was going to use that as kind of like, man, that, that's like the alternative. And, and they went, ah, I kind of like Diet Pepsi. So maybe Diet Coke isn't your thing, but suddenly you see Diet Pepsi, and that's what your heart has been craving, right? It, it is the thing that comparative value instantly you recognize what is drawing your affections. In the same way, you guys have heard I've been building this deck. I've been telling you a little. I just realized how long. It's been years. I just looked at the, the, the thing we did. You know, we did the, uh, the certificate with the village. May 18th, 2021 was when we started this process. May 21st, 2022, it was finally done. But we finally finished it. And, and it, you know, you can see our lake view slash the drainage pond view in the background. And, and it's just a nice place to enjoy, right? But, but the comparative value, if you were standing on the precipice of the Grand Canyon, I've never been there, but I've just heard it described. And the, the overwhelming awe you feel when you're standing there overlooking this incredible vista. The, the comparative value shatters my view out of the water to be there in that space. What would it feel like if you were standing at the Grand Canyon and your response was, eh, eh, that you're not actually experiencing the weight and awe of what is in front of you? This morning, as we dig into the parable, Jesus gives us a comparative value about the kingdom. He gives us a sense of what the worth and value of the kingdom is. And here's what he says. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. So this morning, last week, we looked at the fact that the kingdom of God isn't a reward to be earned. And yet simultaneously, we cannot please the king unless we come to him in search of reward. And here's the challenge sometimes for many of us that gather. Many miss the experience of deeper happiness available. And so join me as we dig into to Jesus' parable about the treasure. God, you are so good. Thank you for your word. Thank you for sharing these stories, these earthly stories with heavenly meanings about your kingdom. Help us feel with more weight today uh, the incredible value of what life in your name is, of what the kingdom of God is. Uh, Reveal yourself, always for your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to walk through this parable 
this, this treasure in a field, the kingdom of heaven being of immense value. And here's the three ideas that Jesus is inviting us into under that one big idea, that we embrace the reality of the search for the reward and we recognize the reward we have found and we pursue that reward, Jesus. The reward is Jesus with all we have. So we embrace the reality of the search for the reward. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up then in his joy. So imagine you have stumbled upon Diet Coke or the drink of choice, whatever that allure might be. When you stumble upon that treasure, what begins to get elicited in your heart? You want more. What else? What else starts to bubble up in your heart? You've stumbled upon that treasure of immense value. He's like, man, it, this, is, this is incredible. How do you respond? Joy. What else? Give me another couple words. And this is the audience part of the participation. You guys get participation trophies later. Yeah. Hey, Will. Excitement. Excitement. Give me, can you give me a demo of excitement? What would that feel like? Yeah. <laughs> that is it right there. You've stumbled upon it. This incredible treasure. And it's there in your hands. What do you feel, right? And so sometimes what's often experienced isn't the allure of what is found. But sometimes what happens when we talk about the treasure that is Jesus, we begin thinking of what we have to give up. What do I have to give up to get this treasure? And is that an illegitimate idea? No, but I love the way Thomas Chalmers describes the exchange. Here's the words he uses to describe that exchange taking place in the heart. A moralist will be unsuccessful in trying to displace his love of the world by reviewing the ills of the world. By thinking of all the things he's got to give up, instead, misplaced affections need to be replaced by the far greater power of the affection of the gospel. It must be by substituting another desire and another line or habit of exertion in its place. And the most effectual way of withdrawing the mind from one object is not by turning it away upon desolation and unpeopled vacancy. What do I got to give up? Instead, by presenting to it regards another object still more alluring. Is the treasure so valuable that, that I'm not having this obligatory shift in my heart? Like, what do I have to give up? But instead, we understand how infinitely valuable this treasure that is Jesus is. It's not that the other isn't true. We're going to see that later this summer. Here's how Jesus tells us about that. He told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In Matthew 10, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. But there's something about the allure of the treasure. The value of the treasure determines the depth and urgency with which I pursue it. How much am I opposed to diet right that I'm going to scour all the coolers to find that can of Diet Coke hidden at the bottom? 
What, what is that allure of that treasure that is so compelling? Jesus says that is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so we embrace the reality that it is a search to find this infinite valuable reward and then recognize the worth of that reward. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had. So there's this merchant out there. His job is to do what? Find pearls, right? Can you imagine a business guy? This is what he's doing. He's out there and he's looking, right? He's searching for good pearls. And then he finds what? A great one. He moves from good to great in recognition of what he has. He's looking for good pearls, right? He's digging around, he's finding, and then he finds one that is great and he recognizes it for what it is. Here's what I often feel. Why don't we more easily recognize the deep joy that's found in Jesus? If it's so obvious, if the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found, it's like a fine pearl, it's great. Why don't we more easily recognize that? And so here's my best attempt at what maybe prevents us from recognizing Jesus as the treasure that he tells us in the parable. Some doubt whether Christianity truly provides it. We look around our culture, and maybe you're here today wrestling. There's still something that, that, that life with Jesus hasn't provided for you. You're still not sure. Maybe it's another world religion. Maybe it's agnostic. You think life is spiritual. It's just not in Jesus. You're still doubting whether Christianity truly provides the deepest joy. You wouldn't be alone. There was a great theologian named Billy Joel who wrote this song about that process. He says this, And they say there's a heaven for those who will wait. Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. What's he saying? He looks at Christians and finds their faith wanting in comparison to the value he sees in other areas of life. The particular context here, he's trying to coax a, a girl to sleep with him, and he believes that would be more pleasurable than abstaining till marriage and finding sex within the confines of marriage much more fulfilling. I don't think he's alone in his assessment of Christianity. So why don't some recognize the deep, deep joy found in Jesus? Some doubt whether Christianity truly provides this deep joy because they look around and they go, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. And then we within the local body, why don't we recognize, we don't recognize the deep joy producing value of the treasure? because I don't think we see too many models of it. That the people we interact with, if we're honest, don't always express and exhibit this deep-seated joy in Jesus above our circumstances. We just don't have as many models to look at and go, that's what it's supposed to look like. And then second, we're just drawn to other pleasures that supersede it. You know that Netflix and apple pie stuff? I am tempted to believe that stuff provides much more value. I just binged watch Obi-Wan Kenobi. Have you guys seen that? Man, not yet. There you go. Star Wars fans, maybe, maybe not. This is, you that love these kind of shows, this is just not my world. But I, every once in a while, I, again, I, what am I doing in that moment? I know what's going on in my heart. 
in my heart, there's an allure that I think that's gonna provide more satisfaction than life with Jesus in that moment for that period of time. Sometimes we think it's in the licentiousness. I think our battle of why we don't find as much joy in Jesus is actually in the Netflix and Apple pie. We are far too easily pleased. Why don't we recognize? If the treasure is so obvious, Augustine says it this way. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. We are so easily pleased by all the other things in life. And we become a, uh, we've become to develop a gospel focused on community and service rather than God himself. We start drifting towards finding value in almost being like the spiritual rotary club, right? We've lost the sense of the mission and purpose. Or if it is about the mission, it almost becomes to the exclusion of the awe and wonder of who God is and we become a social justice movement. Both of those feel like they've, they've caused us to lose the deep joy-producing value of Jesus. Instead, around here, I hope we are trying to manifest all three of these lifestyles. For us, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? It is someone who follows Jesus through his word, hangs out with other followers, and seeks transformation. And we have a shallow view of the king's generosity. Do we understand the depth and magnitude of of what we've been saved from? And how does that manifest in the way we interact with others. This Roe versus Wade stuff, you guys have heard. I've been having a few conversations over the past few weeks, right? Does my heart break when someone is less enthralled with King Jesus? Am I able to demonstrate some form of generosity and desire for them to come to know Jesus? Or do I return anger and vitriol in return? Hear me say sometimes I'd like to believe I'm better than I am, but if you were there with me, I'm not always as good as I'd like to be. Sometimes I reflect a shallow view of the King's generosity in my life of of just being another beggar who's found some bread. And we have low expectations that sanctification will produce deep happiness. David, why should I be honest? Others are dishonest. David, why should I abstain from from sex before marriage? The culture's just inundated with this. Why Why would I be patient with people? Do you understand how impatient people are? We just have a low expectation that those opportunities actually produce deep happiness. And so we embrace the reality of the search for this reward. We recognize the reward we have found. Say it again, Will. What does it feel like when you see that Diet Coke at the bottom of the, bottom of the, the cooler? What does it feel like? Just excitement. We embrace the search. We recognize the reward. Then what might our life be characterized by? Man, we pursue that reward with everything we have. Here's how Jesus says it in the parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and does what? Sells all he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value, what does he do? Sells all he has, sold all that he had and bought that pearl. So here's the question. What's the inevitable question that that starts to bubble up in your heart? When you read that, he goes and sells everything. He sells all he has. What do you think? Well, what is everything? What does it mean to sell everything? And it's an abstract idea that I'm about to share. But here's what I hear when I hear selling everything. It's seeing Jesus himself, the person, not his gifts, the person of Jesus, King Jesus, 
treasured as the reward above anything else this life has to offer. And again, still feels abstract. It reminds me of a story where Jesus is interacting with one of his disciples, Levi, and here's what he says to Levi. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, Matthew, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And what did Levi do? What did Matthew do? Sold everything. Then where'd they go? Or he left. He left everything. Then where did he go? Where? To his house. So obviously he didn't sell his house. So leaving everything must have meaning because he still had his home, right? So he left everything, but where'd he go? Went and parted at his home. So there's something about the condition of our heart that demonstrates leaving everything that still retains possession of house, home, car, food, stuff. We still retain possession, and yet there's some expression of the heart where we treasure Jesus above anything else. And so what are those things? What are those things that could cling to our souls? I just put together a brief list in my head. What are those? Money, sex, power, material stuff. I mean, I was just browsing on Instagram the other day. You know what came up in my feed? Speedboats. I was, I was looking at speedboats. I'm like, man, these things are stinking cool. I mean, just watching those things whip around. And there was even a speedboat. I think this was probably in the Middle East somewhere. They look like cars. So you had like a sports car that was a speedboat. And so you're whipping around on the, anyway, you guys don't care about this stuff, right? Material stuff, fame, hobbies, comfort. And we understand that those that battle with food, maybe a little more evident, but it's no less true that each of us battle with something that wants to sit on the throne of our hearts, right? So sometimes we start bickering with each other about what is going on rather than having mirror living, which reflects on where we still have room to grow. And so what are those things that we might be leaving, we might be battling, we might be giving up for the sake of the treasure? But sometimes we go, man, that diet right sounds so delicious right now. And we're not as captivated by the treasure that is Diet Coke or the treasure that is Jesus. Because money in and of itself is just a tool. And yet we could start to elevate it. Sex is a beautiful expression of the way God designed life to work between man and woman in this beautiful physical, emotional, and spiritual union. And yet when expressed poorly, it starts to, starts to diminish the treasure Fame, hobbies, comfort. If we just want to isolate and pull away and the thought that comfort would provide satisfaction for us. And so I'm going to read a long quote here. You guys love quotes. I know you do. I'm going to read a long quote that tries to capture what is taking place in our hearts in this exchange. Where good things start to then become inappropriately categorized comes from a guy named Barclay who wrote a commentary. I think this is from the Ten Commandments. He says this. From one point of view, it is quite incredible that a man should regard as a god that which he himself cut and carved and manufactured. On the other hand, it is also true that there is nothing easier to understand than the process by which an idol does come to be regarded as divine. One of these things that are trying to sit on the throne of our hearts. God is unseen, a power invisible to the eye of man. It's very hard for simple people to remember and to think about and to worship an unseen God. Well, then let us try to make it a little easier for people. So we make these little images, which is meant in the first place to remind us of God when we look at it. We make a little image to represent God, but bit by bit, the image ceases to represent God and begins to take the place of God. 
And he gives a spiritual illustration to capture that. He says, we find something very like this happening in the case of a crucifix. A crucifix is meant to be a reminder of the love of the cross. It's meant to help men and women by looking at it to fix it, concentrate their minds and hearts on the one who bled and died there. It's meant to be a reminder and a picture uh, to make meditation easier and prayer more real. But the danger is, and it often happens, that the crucifix itself comes to be regarded with superstitious reverence. It itself becomes a holy thing. The symbol is identified and confused with the reality of the thing for which it stands. Idolatry is an ever-present danger, and it is all the more dangerous in that which was originally meant to be an aid to worship becomes the barrier to worship. These things begin to uh, find a different order in the heart. Idolatry means making the means into an end, where I suddenly lose sight of the Diet Coke itself, and I begin focusing on the cup that it is contained in. Sunday morning, even in an environment like this, Sunday morning worship is a means of worshiping God where we collectively gather in a practice 2,000 years since Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. But an elaborate liturgy can become an end in itself. So the means and the method of worship end by becoming more important than the worship itself. Where we lose sight of the infinite value of the treasure and we begin to settle for lesser joys. And so... Those other gods begin to elevate in our heart. And I just imagine each of us have a different wrestling in our hearts. And so what would motivate us? What would actually compel us to sell all we have for the treasure that is Jesus? I'm just going to run through these fairly quickly. We believe Jesus, a relationship with God, faith in Christ is the only place of finding true joy. That if we're still wrestling, we call that conversion. What is conversion? It's not just intellectual assent. It's not just believing something to be true. Just because I believe, oh man, I'll filter, yes. You wanna, so in my head, you guys want to know what I was thinking of right there? Just something that's true, something that's true but actually meaningless. Someone's been trying to sell me on the idea of a bidet. I'm like, who needs a bidet? I'm, anyway, we can talk about that later. But I would say they've been converted to the joy that's found in having a bidet, right? In the same way, man, the treasure of this Diet Coke the treasure that is the vista of the Grand Canyon, these things, in the same way do we see the infinite value of the treasure. We believe Jesus, a relationship with God is both true. It's both true, but also of infinite worth. What motivates to sell all we have? We are assured of the joy-producing value of Jesus. We believe that. Why? Because we have models that we get to observe. We see happy followers of Jesus. We are trying to seek those people out. And so what would motivate us? When I see someone else living out their faith. We see building community and seeking transformation as keys to growing in relationship with Jesus. We want to see the totality of that life of a disciple. Not become a holy huddle, not become some religious Rambo yelling out on the street, but rather all three of those intimately combined. A life of a disciple, that is what Hillcrest wants to be. Building a multi-generational communities, plural, of these types of people ever-deepening reality of what we are saved from and saved to. When guilt starts to well up in your heart, what is that actually revealing? I would argue you're missing the weight of grace. When guilt starts to well up in your heart, you're demonstrating we have not fully experienced what we've been saved from and saved to. We still think we are earning this reward. Instead, when I don't meet this standard as well, I go, wow, God, you covered that too. 
And my debt is just ever growing till we meet Jesus or he returns. And then an overwhelming conviction that spiritual transformation will produce joy. Doesn't nearly happen as quick as I wanted. I wish I could press B5 and out would come my Doritos. I wish I could press C3 and out would come more patience. And yet I'm convinced this growing pursuit, more patient, more kind, spiritual transformation does produce more joy. And so what are the implications? Where might we find ourselves this morning in this journey? If you're struggling to believe God wants you to be happy in him forever, to find the joy of drinking, and I've probably lost half of you because half of you guys don't believe Diet Coke provides any value whatsoever. You'd probably be advocating for what? Coffee, water, no, Mountain Dew. The value of Diet Coke. Are you struggling to believe God wants me to be happy in him forever? Here be my encouragement. Meditate, rest, read these verses and just sit in them. Someone want to shout one of those out? And that was not a rhetorical question. <laughs> Someone want to shout one of those out? Philippians 4.4. 4. Yeah, Philippians 4.4. 4. Uh, Paul says this, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. In the midst of the pain, in the midst of the hardship, might I meditate on, on the call to rejoice, to believe the treasure is satisfying that he is worth it. One more. Give me one more. John 10.10. 10. Yeah. John 10.10. Jesus says, and he's talking about where he is the good shepherd, he says this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came. Jesus came. He came to this earth, God incarnate, that they may have life and have it abundantly. So often we get caught up with these other gods that want to sit on the throne of our heart. Do we believe there is life in Jesus' name? So I'd encourage you, if you're struggling to believe that, that, that Jesus truly is life-giving, I would encourage you to meditate and rest in some of those verses. And if you feel like you believe there is joy, but you're just having trouble pursuing it, it, it just feels so distant at times. It, that there is joy in Jesus, but he feels so distant. Here'd be my encouragement. Take an inventory of the things that might be vying for your affections, different for all of us. What are those things that are clamoring for your time? I know apple pie and Netflix seems to be constantly calling me to just be an apathetic consumer in this life. Take an inventory of the things that would be vying for your affections and then find a model. We call that intentional apprenticeship around here. Just like I love how John said it, right? He said, you know, sometimes a little awkward to walk up to the gas attendant. Sometimes awkward to walk up to someone and say, man, I'm just trying to figure this thing out. Ask. Intentional apprenticeship. And then, I would just encourage, keep reading the biblical text. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what might you do if you read all the Gospels? Read them again. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then if you believe you are experiencing the treasure and the pearl of great value and you are vigilantly, there, there, there's no room. You're like, I got nowhere to grow. You are vigilantly pursuing him. Here would be my encouragement. Much like you heard John say, our global partner, developing intentionally with whom are you sharing? And it's those already in your life, not adding something else, but actually 
modeling what John just said. We pray, we watch, and then what do we do? We step, believing sometimes my car might overheat that is leading me into a gas station. You guys understand, I don't coach soccer because I'm any good at soccer. You guys understand that? I, they, they almost asked me to help coach baseball. I went, oh man, there's like my line. There's like a line in my head there, where you're so bad at something you can't help because you, it'd actually be counterproductive. Your neighbor's little league school's job, with whom are you sharing? And if you said, David, I, I already am. I'm, I'm, already, I'm already having these conversations. What do you think my encouragement would be? May I share it again? <laughs> And sometimes in our heart, we develop this thing called compassion fatigue where, where we just go, we can't, we can't do it again. I've given all I can. I think rest is more than appropriate. But resting to work, not working from rest, right? Resting to work to share the treasure, believing we are beggars that have found some bread. And then well, what might you think my next encouragement might be? Look for someone else. This is the gift. This is the joy. If we have experienced the treasure, if we believe this treasure of so much value, we can't help but want to share it. I think back to, to my friend Juan. You guys know I, I grew up in the system, right? I grew up in the church, and, and I love the truth of who God was and is that, that was shared with me. Here's one thing that I feel like sometimes I didn't see as fully. Anyone want to take a guess? Uh, this joy that I grew up and I love the truth that was shared, but looking for someone to model what this joy in Jesus would look like. And I remember going to college and, and uh, my buddy Juan would just drag me along in his car and we'd drive to San Pedro and we'd hang out. Sometimes I didn't always like his driving habits. They weren't always the most productive, but all Juan did was love me. That's all he did. He just invited me into his life and walked with me in whatever questions and modeled what life could look like. Wherever you find yourself in your sphere, are we living as everyday missionaries, demonstrating a hope in this treasure, believing of, of, uh, of the infinite value that this treasure is? Pray with me. Oh God, you're so good. Wherever we find ourselves in this journey, if yet to fully see the infinite value, or if deeply satisfied and longing for more, wherever we find ourselves, God, meet us there and help us take one more step uh, of treasuring you above anything else this life has to offer. Whatever might be vying for our affection or our time or our energy, may we see you as satisfying and see those other things become less so. Thank you, Jesus. Always for your glory, we pray. Amen.